Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hidden Histories. For today's podcast, I sit down with Dr. Emma Wells. Emma is an incredibly talented historian and academic and specialises in ecclesiastical and architectural history. She's a girl who knows her churches. Emma talks to me all about pilgrimage through the ages and the well-trodden routes that we come across in the UK and still exist today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Emma Wells, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Um, So you are Doctor of Medieval History at the University of York, particularly Ecclesiastical History. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk all about the hidden history behind pilgrims and the pilgrim routes, particularly around the British Isles. Absolutely. Which are probably some of the well-loved walks and things that we do today. Indeed. In fact, many of the sort of hiking trails, walking routes have stemmed from either ancient or medieval pilgrim routes. So how was the pilgrim route established, particularly in the British Isles? Because traditionally, I think the first thing that pops into my mind is pilgrim um, travelling across into the continent, so mm. even as far as um, the Holy Land. Yes. Well, of course, pilgrims did go abroad. They did travel internationally. But we also had a huge sort of influx of pilgrimage come, particularly 12th to 14th century. Um, and some of the greatest pilgrim sites, um, end points, if we say, were in England, were at Canterbury, perhaps rival with Durham during the medieval era. So they, they are certainly as um, popular in England as they were in France, Spain, Jerusalem, Rome, you know, all the sort of most important areas. So that's they were, they were going everywhere, essentially. But what we need to think is, I think we tend to think that pilgrims journeyed or perhaps journeying every year to you know, a particular endpoint, great endpoint. So Santiago, Rome, Jerusalem, wherever it might be, Lourdes, or Canterbury here at Walsingham. But actually these were sort of grand undertakings. You know, you couldn't take a week off work. You know, you had to be constantly doing whatever you're doing at home. Um, so a lot of them were also to local shrines, so to your local parish church, for the same reasons, of course, but they were much more frequent than these grand, which, these grand undertakings, which you may make once in a lifetime. Okay, and so what would make somebody a pilgrim? What actually was a pilgrimage? Well, a pilgrim really was someone who undertook a peregrination or a journey um, to a shrine site or a relics, whatever it might be. Um, they will have made a vow before they go, um, 
they also go and visit their parish priest, you know, and therefore when they make this vow to their parish priest, they are then a pilgrim. Um, and I say they go on, but actually some of the more wealthy um, would pay other people as well to go and pilgrimage for them. So you didn't have to get your your, your um, boots muddy if you didn't want to. But you would then journey along however long the route might be to the shrine site for whatever reason it might be. You might need a miracle to happen. You might need a cure because you were unwell. Um, you might just need a better harvest. You know, you're struggling in the farming field. Or it might just be a, sort of a holiday that that also happened. So you'd go there, visit the shrine, um, make a blessing, get a, usually a pilgrim badge as well, which is sort of your much more than mementos, um, and then go back home and hopefully that miracle will occur. Okay, so it was it was sort of like doing travelling, in essence, to get some kind of assistance from the divine. Yes, absolutely, yes. Okay, and there were lots of different shrines, two different uh, saints, mm-hmm. different relics yes. as well. So you have a sort of um, hierarchy of relics. You would have first-class relics, which were the body, really, of a saint or a martyr or Christ, because um, the first relics or the first pilgrimages were to Christ, the, the places where Christ lived and died. Um, and then you have sec- second-class relics, which were garments, things that that saint had come into contact with. And then third-class was um, things, areas where perhaps the, the body or... Um, the actual saint had come into contact with. The reason for that is if a saint, say, had lain somewhere, there's a sort of imbued sanctity. His his sanctity is imbued within that location, so it's felt to be contained forever there within, which is why when St Cuthbert goes on his wanderings um, for many, many years, you know, his body's taken when the Vikings come to Holy Island or Lindisfarne, each of the areas that he stops at, his body rests at, they are. They then become pilgrimage sites because you know his sanctity is imbued within those locations. Okay. So, what are some of the earliest pilgrim routes, and how did they come into existence? Well, the earliest, as I say, is to arguably is to Christ mm. uh, to see where Christ lived and died um, in order to uh, become imbued with that sanctity of Christ. So that's where it stems from. From there, we have Jerusalem, Rome, and Santiago, who become, which become sorry, the most important and popular sites within sort of Middle Ages. And then in England, I would say it was, I mean, it was still going on in the earlier Middle Ages, but when Cuthbert dies um, in the 7th century, he, he then gets moved, as I say, because of his wanderings of his body. He ends up in Durham, um, 12th century, 11th, 12th century, he's there. However, what's very interesting is the his original burial site at Lindisfarne, Holy Island, up in Northumberland. He pilgrims were still going there even after he'd gone. So he was interred in Lindisfarne Priory, um, and then even after his body had gone, pilgrims were still going, still making this journey. I mean, it is an island; you have to watch the tide, you know, and go through the tide. And even where he'd lived on the island. Those, what's very interesting is those sites were, um, such as his hermitage, etc., were rebuilt continually throughout the Middle Ages. So this shows that even from when he was, even when he perished, all the way throughout the Middle Ages, pilgrims were coming, and clearly it was sort of a rebuilding these sites as a sort of theme park or tourist attraction, so that they are there forever. So he's perhaps one of the earliest, and then Thomas Beckett, he gets murdered. And the sort of this rivalry between Cuthbert and Beckett, but then there's so many others. I mean, it's could we ever say which is the first the first shrine site, the first pilgrim route? It's 
difficult to say. And what were these? So, sort of starting more towards the time of Cuthbert, what were these? Um, what were these pilgrim routes like? How how did people travel? What sort of things did they encounter? Well, if you were going a long distance, so you know, maybe you lived in the south, and you were going to visit Cuthbert in Durham. It's a very arduous journey. You know, it's torturous, and that's the point. Though the more arduous it was, the more you sort of worked for your miracle or worked for your cure, whatever it might be. Um, there weren't. There were sort of specific routes you could take, um, which would be the more the trade routes. Essentially, that's that's where routes sort of start. Even the sort of ancient trackways as well, they morph into trade routes. Um, you know, if you're getting from one location to the other, you would go along a specific road, like we would have the A1 or M1 nowadays. And from there, um, you take these routes, but. Some of the most um, popular routes might actually be not really the ones that you want to take. You're sort of exposed to someone coming to mug you or whatever it might be, and that sort of happened a lot. So as a result, pilgrims would go sort of the back route, um, you know, go off track. And that's how several other routes uh, sort of transpired from there. Along the way, you'd have your, you know, your pilgrim badge, uh, your pilgrim staff, your pilgrim hats. People would know that you are you know, wandering on this uh, journey of devotion um, and you could encounter anything. In fact, later on we see pilgrim routes being, attacks being levied on them. So again, they use another route and they have become a sort of modern hiking trails of today. So what are some of the existing routes from this period that are around today that people can still travel on? Oh, so many. St Cuthbert's Way, which is what I've mentioned, that's... Um, goes from Melrose to Lindisfarne, so sort of skirts in English-Scottish border. Now, I say that that is still there, but it's difficult to say these are some of the original routes because are they? We don't, we don't really know. We're just assuming, given the sites that are associated with the saint, his life, his death. I mean, Melrose Abbey is the start of it. The old old Melrose, essentially, is where Cuthbert was a novice, where he was interred. Um, he started his monastic life. But Melrose Abbey is the start, which is a later abbey. Um, and then along the way, there's all sorts of interesting sites, as well as those connected with him. So this has become more of a, a tourist route, if you will. The Pilgrim's Way, sort of Canterbury, Winchester, that way, is a little bit more true to life. And we have others that are a little bit more true to life, but we don't... That one we can say because some of the early maps, that's that's the road, that's the one we think they took. But the others have sort of been formed over the years, over the years with connections, churches that are dedicated to these saints. So there are actually quite few that are original, if you want to use that word. So you've talked quite a bit about St Cuthbert. Mm-hmm. He is probably, I'd say, one of the most famous saints that we have. Yes. Who was he for those who aren't so familiar with him? He started his uh, work, um, his monastic life at Melrose, and then was interred at Lindisfarne Priory. Now, what's extremely interesting about Cuthbert is perhaps perhaps he's most well-known for his death rather than his mm. life, perhaps. Um, I mean, he lived on um, Holy Island in uh, St Cuthbert's Isle, as it's called, just off. And it's a tiny little island, lived as a hermit there, and went over to the Farn, Farn Islands too. But what's really interesting about him is he essentially started, in some respects, he started Durham Cathedral, the monastic community at Durham, because if it wasn't for his body ending up there, we wouldn't have Durham Cathedral today. 
Um, but he he undertook miracles after after his body was interred at Lindisfarne. We see lots of different miracles happening there, and that's how he became a saint. Things such as oh, there was there was a boy running around the island. Um, I think he was paralysed, and he suddenly wasn't anymore when he touched the shrine or something like that. So he's one of the sort of founding not founding fathers, but he started and sort of mi- administered Christianity throughout throughout the British Isles. So he's famous and popular for so many different reasons, really. Um, you know, Christianity essentially starts at Iona, then it goes to the Roman Church, and that's how we have Catholicism. And if it wasn't for him, that perhaps wouldn't have been the case because he administered out from Northumberland and went out and out. Okay, so he was an incredibly important saint mm. and there was a, a real cult that was then built around him. Yeah, after he was interred at Durham, the shrine is built, uh, his tomb shrine is, is built at the East End. But as I say, he was also extremely revered throughout wider Northumberland and at Lindisfarne. Um, and there's so, you know, there's hunt, sort of thousands of pilgrims were coming to visit Durham. And in fact, the whole um, Nine Altars, the Chapel of Nine Altars, it's called at Durham, which is the East End, the sort of squared East End. And that appears to have been constructed for pilgrims waiting to get into his shrine area, which is called the Ferretry. It's a very small enclosed space, so you can only get, you know, one, two, maybe four people within there at the time. But there were so many people coming to visit that they needed to extend, and they built this whole Chapel of Nine Altars as a sort of, somewhat of a waiting area for pilgrims, so, you know, they could get more in and out. Okay, so from this period, how did pilgrimage within the British Isles develop? So obviously Northumberland and Lindisfarne was an incredibly sacred and important place. Mm-hmm. Um, where else was there sort of moving into later on into the Middle Ages? Pretty much anywhere you can think of, there would be pilgrimage. So as I said earlier, with you could go to your local shrine. Um, so a lot of parish churches did have shrine sites so they would have had a local saint a local martyr whatever it might be some of them were not canonized and that's sort of an important point to say you know you, you had to pay your dues you had to do certain things in order to be canonized and they wouldn't just canonize anyone so a lot of parish churches now you know because of um 16th century they have disappeared but there were many shrines many important individuals within each parish each diocese but as time goes on the most important we have walsingham um, sort of 11th century shrine there, which is um, Our Lady, the, the Shrine of Our Lady, which is known as England's Nazareth. And even to this day, though, 250,000 pilgrims a year descend on that, which is actually Little Walsingham, I should say. That's where the shrine is. There's several other shrines there now. But in fact, it was said that each man during his life had to visit the Shrine of Our Lady at, at Walsingham. That's how important it was. And you could sort of get a blessing and time off to go and visit the shrine menward during their lifetime. Why was this shrine so particularly important? Because it's the shrine of Our Lady. It's where, um, it's sort of an interesting story behind it. Um, it's essentially just to do with where the shrine was constructed. And it was said that the Virgin, you know, there's an appearance by the Virgin and that's where, where the shrine had to be built, this house had to be built. But it's because that's the Virgin Mary's territory, if you will, in the British Isles, in England at that time. You know, we didn't have any relics devoted to Christ, particularly. The Virgin Mary is an extremely important cult come the later Middle Ages. Um, and that's why it became England's Nazareth, because there was nothing else like it. You know, the Virgin Mary is, ext- I mean, you know, next to Christ, she was the most popular, most important saint. 
Were people leaving anything at these shrines or were they going really and it was more of a, um, a spiritual conversation? But I would probably say both, actually. You would usually visit your shrine. You would There would be an altar. There might be a priest saying something over you. Um, you'd go and do whatever you had to do. You'd Usually, a lot of the shrines have sort of apertures opening so that you can get as close as you can to the relics. So you'd make your blessing, and then usually you would um, you would purchase a pilgrim badge or a souvenir sort of type thing. At uh, Canterbury with Thomas Beckett, we even have... Um, the, the sort of Beckett's water, which is holy water mixed with the blood that spilt from his head wound and which was mopped up as he laid there in the north transept. But that was an extremely, extremely sort of devotional object to have. You know, you had a part of the saint. Um, but pilgrim roots were the same. They were said to be instilled with the sanctity, this, you know, the saint's sanctity. And you would even, you know, press your pilgrim badge against, against the shrine to get that sanctity uh, instilled. And then you would often go away, take them away with you. You might display them on your hat, you know, on your cape. Um, and a lot of them we find in sort of water, so rivers or wells. And it's because you would then sort of fold up this pewter or tin pilgrim badge, throw it in the water, and that was in the hope that that would sort of let the magic... Sort of like in. how we throw a penny into a fountain yeah, that's today. that's probably perhaps, perhaps where it stands yeah. Yes, and it's hopefully therefore the miracle... Well, will happen, will occur. So these pilgrim badges, they're, they're essentially a token of your journey. Yes. Um, what, what, what were they? They were sort of all different things. We find all different things. We have ampullae, which were sort of little um, flasks of, you might have at York, we have St. William's of York Shrine. Now, he was a local saint, didn't really go very far outside York City walls, but extremely important saint to York. And... There's something called the odour of sanctity. Now, a lot of saints were said to um, have the, uh, sort of give out this odour of sanctity. And he also had um, sort of sacred oil as well, which gave out this odour. And there was even spigots, sort of little pipes coming out of his shrine. And this oil would flow out of them and pilgrims would go and put their little flasks underneath and collect this oil, whatever it might be, from his uh, from his shrine, and then go away and you know do whatever with it. You could display. They've been found sort of all all over. Um, your pilgrim badges would usually be pewter, tin, maybe lead, and they were often in the form of perhaps the shrine, look like the shrine itself. They may look like the, sh- the saint itself, or one of his attributes. So his hand, perhaps he was a healing saint with his hands or something like that. And St. William of York is interesting on this one because it there was probably many badges, and there are in fact, that mirror, say, limbs or something that you would go to get a cure for. And in fact, around his tomb or shrine, you would have all these sort of pilgrim badges, but also offerings in wax. So say you had, I don't know, a bad foot or a bad arm, you've broken your arm, you would make a little wax model of your arm and give it to the saint and they would be hung up around the shrine in the hope a similar type hope that this memento this token would uh, would fulfill whatever you needed it to fill to heal your arm 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's so interesting because I think there is naturally installed within us this element of this hope and superstition Mm -hmm. that we can be healed in some way or you know if we're struggling with something that something of more of a supreme force will come and assist us with that so Mm -hmm. I think this idea of pilgrimage really does stem from very innate human um human ambition or or desire yeah need or desire to be healed and cured by a higher power yeah so you've mentioned Thomas Beckett. Mm-hmm. What happened to Thomas Beckett to inspire his sainthood and inspire pilgrims to travel to Canterbury? Okay, well, Thomas Beckett was, um, I think we, we sort of all know the story, but he was murdered um, by Henry II's knights, not one or two, three or four, however, it depends which sort of account you read. He was slain in the northwest transept of Canterbury Cathedral. So yeah, we all know the saying, who would rid me of this turbulent priest, uh, which he didn't actually say. That was never recorded. It's, it's much more fancy than that. It's much more elaborate than that. But there was essentially a toing and froing between crown and church. And um, Beckett was on the, I suppose Beckett was on the side of the church, really. And the powers that bishops and archbishops would have, that's, that's essentially where it stems from. Now, I don't think Henry II really wanted to get into, have any murderous deeds, you know, ascribed to his name. But he was overheard sort of saying, you know, he had problems with Beckett and his knights took that as him wanting to get rid of him. And so they went over and uh, went to Canterbury and murdered him. Um, I mean, the fact that we think Henry didn't want this to happen is he, he went on pilgrimage to Beckett's tomb once he had been interred in Canterbury in the, in the crypt. And, you know, for several several times he pleaded for penance for this sort of sin that he had committed. He went barefoot, you know, was being flagellated while he did so, spent days, nights, I believe, at the shrine, at his tomb, sorry, just saying, you know, forgive me for what I've done. So I think that that's sort of proof he didn't really want this. But so there's something that I've always wondered about this is, is it not true that holy men were often killed? in conflict or 
you know, it, this wasn't the first time a man of the cloth had been killed. What made Becket so special for them to be canonised? Well, he was an archbishop. So he was an archbishop and he was slain within his church. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury as well. So there, there was a whole uh, debate between whether York or Canterbury had primacy. Um, Canterbury sort of won that argument just. Um, so, you know, Canterbury was sort of the Catholic Church's place in England. And he is the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he's God's representative on earth. And he has been slain by another of God's representative on earth. But he's slain there in his cathedral. That's that's a sacred place. You should not go into a cathedral and commit murder. It's a completely, not only, you know, sort of treasonable act, as it were, but it's it's against God. It's against, you know, your religion, your everything that you believe in, particularly in the Middle Ages, you know, we just, we know how important religion was. It imbued every single aspect of society and life. And he was murdered right in front of, of you know, the Lord, not in front of the high altar, but it was in front of an altar while he was doing God's work. And that's why it's so important, you know, and in such a horrendous way, you know, it really was a sort of murderous act. You know, he was essentially scalped and it was done by the crown. So that's why it's extremely important. It's a mix of sort of politics as well as religion. And so do you think that Henry did use his pilgrimage as a type of propaganda with that? Oh, this is very interesting. Did he? That's the point. I mean, many royals went, many monarchs went on pilgrimage. This, you know, wasn't new. It wasn't anything new. You know, we spoke about um, Walsingham um, and the fact that every man was, you know, supposed to go to the shrine. So the majority of medieval monarchs did go and visit Walsingham. So, you know, they may go, you know, on the travelling around as they did. Uh, on progresses or whatever, and they would make it a duty to go and visit shrine sites. So it was nothing new, but if he was therefore seen to venerate and and sort of commiserate over what he had done, this terrible act, it would send a message to the public. Mm. You know, it wasn't an entirely private event when he went to, to Canterbury. He sort of went on a progress to get there. He went on a pilgrimage there, so, you know, a lot of people knew about it. So I think it was a propaganda tool. Indeed. So what is, um, you know, and what you've already, we've already discussed is the fact that pilgrimage was open to everybody from royals through to the, the common man. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any particularly different routes and precedents that royals might have over the common person? Or do you think that it really was a very neutral ground for people in the Middle Ages? I think it would probably depend on who the royal was and what they were doing it for. A lot of them, a lot of monarchs would actually, as I alluded, they would probably be on progress. So say they came up to York um, and then they would visit York Minster and St. William Shrine while they were there. So they would probably go to the most most popular sites, you know, they have the most important sanctity, whatever you want to call it. Um, So a lot of them weren't on pilgrimage arguably you could call that, they were doing other things and they would make it a point to visit the local site. Then we see people such as Henry II who was making a point, you know, he had to go and atone for his sin. And so he did go on a pilgrimage. But there are actually few royals really who went just on a pilgrimage. So pilgrim routes are much more of a every man's, every man's journey, really. And... 
on the behalf of the term of hidden histories, we've talked about some of the three, you know, the three main sort of pilgrim sites throughout the Middle Ages. Well, the most, yeah, the most well known. Yeah. But for people, but you've also said that there are pilgrim routes everywhere. From your research, what are some of the most interesting and surprising, but more hidden pilgrim routes? I mean, in my in my book, my pilgrim routes of the British Stars, I do focus on seven. So Cuthbert's Way is in that, Pilgrim's Way is in that. But there's also St. Andrew's Way in Scotland, which is obviously the most notable saint in Scotland. But then I think what's a really interesting area, let's just say, is Cornwall. Because things are a little bit different down there. Um, and there are sort of lots, lots of shrine sites. You know, as, we, as you just said, um, you could essentially go on pilgrimage to anywhere, to your local your local shrine site but in Cant- uh, sorry in Cornwall we sort of see lots of different routes because there are just so many shrine sites you know ev- even to this day a lot of parish churches will hold relics or where the relics originally were and so you can essentially devise pilgrim routes across Cornwall any which way you wanted and go from one important shrine site to another you know you could start with if you wanted to sort of King Arthur over on the West and end with St. Neot, who's an extremely important Cornish saint in the East, well, sort of Middle East. So it's a little bit different there because they weren't, it's not entirely understood whether Cornish saints were important outside of Cornwall because there are just so many. And, you know, this is an extremely, extremely wealthy, some of these, these, these parishes. Um, but for that reason, we then get shrines, stained glass associated with the cults, sort of infrastructure still going on into the mid-16th century. So I think that just shows just how much pilgrimage was a, an important part across Cornwall because you just it's just everywhere sort of thing, even as the break with Rome was going on. Oh, that's so interesting. And I think what is so amazing about these pilgrim routes, which you cover in your wonderful book, is that it is such a different and unique way of sort of connecting with mm-hmm. with the Middle Ages? I think it's perhaps the one of the best ways of connecting with the Middle Ages because you can go from a medieval site to a medieval site, Anglo-Saxon, whatever it might be, but you can go from an early site to an early site. And if you're going on this pilgrim journey, you are, obviously you're not going to get a quite authentic experience, but there is some sort of that connection with just being, I don't know, in solitary, you know, on a solitary journey. Um, and visiting these these sites that you know hundreds or thousands of pilgrims before you were, were visiting too for, and they were sort of praying and hoping for something that may entirely change their lives. You know, you are walking in the footsteps of pilgrims past. That in other places, yes, you can go and visit a church or a cathedral, but this is the way that you can connect. You can connect to the landscape. You know, all your senses are heightened. I think it's the best way of doing so. There you go. So if anybody wants to retrace the footsteps of St. Cuthbert or even King Henry III, then you can do so. You can go out and buy your wonderful book, which is called Pilgrim Roots of the British Isles. And where's that available? Is it anywhere? Anywhere, yeah. Anywhere, really. All good bookshops and Amazon, etc. And what are you working on at the moment? Have you got anything new coming out? Well, my next book is called Heaven and Earth, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals. And this is 20 of the world's greatest cathedrals, or in my opinion, the world's greatest cathedrals. Um, it's not just England. Uh, I focus on sort of 
Central Europe as well, Northern Central Europe, and also Russia too. So, you know, we go a little bit outside the box. But it's it's the birth, I would say, I'm sort of talking about the birth of Gothic, but not solely architecturally speaking. I'm looking at those from uh, from crown to pauper, if you want to say it that way, all the interesting stories and people who made up these churches, who built these vast enterprises, these this heaven on earth, these, you know, kingdom of heaven on, on earth. And, you know, how did they do it? Why did they do it? And how, you know, and sort of in what way? All the, all the tales that sort of associate with that. Well, I feel like there's loads to talk about there. So I think we're going to have to definitely go to one of these... Uh amazing heaven on earth cathedrals and have a, a, a chat about the hidden histories of that too sounds good so you're on social media and you have a website um how can people find you uh well my website is emmajwells.com so that's an easy one uh, i'm on twitter which is emma underscore j underscore wells and also instagram wells underscore emma i think it is I always or wells emma. yes i should make them all the same <laughs> Uh, and Facebook too, you'll be able, be able to find me. And I continually post about, you know, ecclesiastical or any architectural sites on a regular basis. Yeah, all well, your work is so fascinating. I'm, I'm really interested in it. And I think you are well worth everybody going and having a good read of, of all of your fabulous research. Thank you very much. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.